Today, try to wrap it all up with two large blocks of scripture, Romans 4 and Galatians 3, and the message is how the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. And uh, this is vital. I, I was going to bring the board out again, but I decided not to. Um, if you have any questions about that, you can ask. You can also watch online uh, and see last week's um, presentation, uh, which I think would be very, very helpful for you. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant is vital and important. It's the foundation of uh, so many things. But we do need to remember that the Abrahamic covenant is composed of spiritual and physical promises. And uh, so as such, we cannot call it the covenant of grace, but it carries with it, you know, the seed forms of the covenant of grace. It carries with it the purpose of the covenant of grace. It carries with it the fact that faith is really the issue. Uh, the, God's people are people of faith. And so in Israel, the nation that uh, came from Abraham, uh, they're really, um, with all the things, circumcision was given. Just trying to recap a bit. Circumcision was given, and the Israelites saw circumcision as so vital and important. And it was, but it wasn't grace. Circumcision isn't grace. Circumcision's a work. Okay, so we have to see that aspect of it there. And it's important, but you had a lot of circumcised people that did not know the Lord or believe in God. And so Israel had a remnant of true believers like Abraham that trusted the Lord by faith. And so that's what we need to remember as we go through the aspects here. And we need to remember the ultimate purpose of all of the covenants. Um, you know, the, the Adamic covenant, covenant of works, he falls, and the promises given in seed form in Genesis 3.15, which really tells us exactly what the covenants are going to be about. It's going to be about the Lord Jesus Christ coming and conquering Satan and having a people for his name. That's what all the covenants are going to point towards, and they're going to do it in various different ways. But this is a, a gigantic step forward towards um, what we enjoy today in the new covenant. It shows faith as being so important. And he's promised a heritage. He has to believe that by faith. And that's an amazing thing when you think about it. It's, you know, the Bible talks about the fact, we'll see today, that his faith never wavered. Well, that's true because God looks at the, the macro, you know, and talks that way. But it's pretty hard for a 99-year-old guy to believe he's going to have a, a baby from a 90-year-old woman, okay? Now that's pretty rough, you know. And uh, he already had Ishmael, so he said, let Ishmael live before you, you know. To him, Ishmael's the promised seed. But Ishmael was not the promised seed. Ishmael would be a great nation himself, and nations would come from Abraham. But the promised seed was Isaac, and the covenants renewed in Isaac. And then Jacob, not Esau, but in Jacob the covenants renewed. And then there comes the favored nation, goes down into Egypt, and grows in the womb of Egypt to be a mighty people. So mighty that the Egyptians become afraid of them. You know, but a mighty people to be led out. But here's where the problem comes in. And uh, it's not God's fault. <laughs> it's not God's problem. It's 
the problem of the way we read. It's the problem of the way the Israelites read. We're God's favored nation. We're God's people. All true. They'll be given the Mosaic Covenant, which we won't deal with today, but they'll be given that. 400 years, 430 years after Abraham. They'll be given the Mosaic Covenant and all those intricate laws that we'll look at next time. But the purpose of Israel wasn't so that Israel could be the greatest nation on earth. And the purpose of Israel wasn't so that um, uh, they could rule over everyone else. That was not the purpose of Israel. Who knows what the purpose of Israel was? Why, why was there an Israel? What's the purpose? Yeah. Bring forth the Savior. There you go. That's what it's all about. To bring forth the Savior. And they did that. They did accomplish the, God's purpose. They brought forth the Savior. But there were so many that couldn't get it right. They thought, okay, here's the Messiah. Now we are going to be the greatest nation on earth. Now there's going to be a physical throne set up. He's going to rule on it. He's going to reign on it. When Messiah comes, we're going to be the nation that everybody bows to. We'll be the world power. That's what so many believed. And that was the predominant thought of the day. And it's the primary reason that Messiah was rejected. Because that's not why he came. That was never his purpose to make Israel to be the greatest nation ever. And that's still a problem today. There are still many of our Christian brothers and sisters that believe that uh, the purpose of God is to make Israel the greatest nation ever. And of course in 1947 when they became a nation, uh, the frenzy really took off. You know? And so they said, okay, here it is. Israel's going to be the greatest nation ever, just like what the Bible says. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible didn't say that Israel would be the greatest nation ever. The Bible said Israel would bring forth the Messiah and Jew and Gentile together would form the greatest spiritual nation ever that would last for all eternity. And so the, the Jewish remnant, which still remains to this day, those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Gentile remnant taken from out of all of the world together with the Jewish remnant making up the church, the bride of Christ, and of course it goes on into the eternal state. So, the Abrahamic covenant is made up of physical promises and spiritual promises, the spiritual being by far the most important and still in place today because faith is the foundation of everything. And Abraham is considered the father of the faith. That's not that there was no faith before Abraham, but uh, the Genesis 12, the promise, Genesis 15, the first covenant, and then Genesis 17, um, the, an addition to the covenant, which made the covenant bigger, but a lot of physical promises are given in Genesis 17, uh, many of them, by the way, conditional, but showing forth promises that are not conditional, promises that are spiritual and will be fulfilled and are being fulfilled and will take place all the way to the eternal state. So, there you go. A little bit of a recap of where we've been. Now turn to Romans chapter 3. You know, I'm going to change my mind, Joe. Will you go get a, a microphone and be our reader today? Yeah. Get, get a microphone and be our reader. 
Linda, you be his interpreter, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Brother Joe's got the same problem I do. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to hear, you know? And that's just the way it is. So I am going to ask you to be a reader after all, Joe. Okay? So um, you can turn to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read Romans 3 myself, and then starting in chapter 4, I'm going to have you read starting in chapter 4. Okay? There you go. Very good. Romans chapter 3, the introduction to chapter 4 is found in chapter 3. And, um, you know, it's the way that Paul did it. We, we arbitrarily set a chapter and verse divisions and everything like that. They're helpful. We're glad for them. Uh, we should never think that they're inspired, for they certainly aren't. And sometimes they don't even um, make a lot of sense. But, you know, we don't want to generally have chapters that are 80 verses long in the New Testament. There's a couple of them, but that's about all there is. We generally want to have um, chapters that uh, make sense, and for the most part, I'll say they did a good job. And I'm not going to say they even did a bad job here. But we do need to see that uh, Genesis 3 flows into 4, obviously, but the outline for 4 is in 3. So let's go all the way back to those, those famous verses uh, in uh, chapter 20 or 322, this isn't where the outline is, but this is where its conclusion comes. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. And he means uh, no difference between Jew and Gentile, which was something I think we would hopefully know, but it was something they had to learn. There is no difference, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that it might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." So you can see the emphasis on faith that leads up into chapter 4. And now here's the outline. Verse number 27. Where is boasting is the first point that's made. Verse 27. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, that'll be very important when we get to the Mosaic Covenant uh, because um, many taught wrongly in Israel that salvation came by law-keeping. And then the really sad part of it is that they thought they kept the law, you know, because they turned the law of God into something that they could do, you know. And that's why Christ uh, so adamantly teaches against that by saying it, it's a matter of the heart and whenever he would do that, um, they'd say, I'm not a murderer. Do you hate? Hates the root of murder. You know, so, so that's why Christ uh, is dealing like that with the people of that time. So anyway, there's the first point. Where is boasting? There's no boasting. Because faith is given and grown by God. There's nothing to boast about. You know, it's his gift. Second of all, is he the God of the Jews only? In verse 29, is he the God of the Jews only? And um, let's remember, in the Old Testament, 
Israel was the only nation, basically, that God was dealing with and talking to. Is that still true as we come to the New Testament? Verse 29. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? And uh, he says, yes, of the Gentiles also. So we can't really make a mistake there. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And then the third and last point, and he'll elaborate on all of these. Does faith make the law null and void? A little beyond where we're going today, because we're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, but uh, verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So now, we will elaborate on that. You know, where is boasting? And um, Joe, if you could read the first eight verses of chapter four for us, please. Okay. And this is under the title of Where is Boasting? What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Okay, thank you. Now, so this is an Old Testament truth. It's not just a New Testament truth. Faith has always been the way of salvation. And that's taken, that scripture there is taken from Psalm 32. Now, um, James, the book of James, people get confused about this. And the book of James says, wasn't, wasn't Abraham justified by works? Okay, when he offered his son Isaac. Well, you know, that becomes, um, that became really one of the, the Roman Catholics arguments that they used against Luther. They said, well, it says right here. Yeah. And of course, Luther's response, I'm not going to blame Luther for this, because he was a trailblazer that did so many great things. But his response was, that's from James. We, we really don't care much for James. You know, that's not a book that we really care for too much. But all James is saying, of course, James was a Jew, very Jewish, but his argument is a different one than Paul's. His argument is Abraham proved his faith by his works because faith without works is dead. That's true. You can say you believe in Jesus all day long, but then you just live your life as though there were no Jesus, there were no God, you know, then, then do, are we supposed to believe what you say or what you do? Because true faith will always bear fruit. And so that's the point. Paul's not saying that true faith doesn't bear fruit. He's using Abraham as an example of a man of faith, but he wasn't justified by his works, but he had works, okay? He had works. I mean, he didn't just say, I believe, I believe in God, and then just do his own thing. 
Does that make sense? Okay. So, so really, there is no disagreement. There's not Pauline theology as opposed to, to James theology. That, that doesn't exist. But we need, to, we need to understand what we're reading when we're reading it. So we would be very wrong to think salvation has come in any other way except by faith. That's what the argument is. Now, the second point, is he the God of the Jews only? I'm not doing an exposition here. We don't have time to do that. I'm trying to give you a big overview of the arguments that are being made, that Paul's making here. And um, it is still relevant for today. Is he the God of the Jews only? That'd be verses 9 through 12. Okay, 9 through 12. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. The father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Okay, now that may not sound like a a big deal to us. It's a big deal, though. Because he's arguing something, you know. God had already given Abraham a promise. You know, leave your land, and I'll be with you and show you a land, Genesis 12. And now in Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant is made based on the promise that had already been given. And we could actually say that Abraham was a Gentile. Because circumcision will mark the difference between Jews and Gentiles. And so here is a man with a promise, but he doesn't have a seal to the covenant yet. A man with a promise. And so we could say, well, look at that. He had faith. He was an uncircumcised man with faith that had God's promises. And that would not have been popular to the Judaizers. They would have been, but he's just arguing from chronology. It, it can't be argued any other way. Genesis 15, in, in fact, does come before uh, Genesis 17. Circumcision is instituted in Genesis 17, at least 13 years later. So we have this time period being drawn out in, in Abram's life. We call Abram at that time. We have this time period being drawn out. He's given a promise. And, and he obeys according to the promise. Then he's given a greater promise and a covenant to go with it. And all the blessings of Genesis 15. But he still is uncircumcised. God has dealt with an uncircumcised man by faith. So the argument is, why wouldn't he deal with if circumcision is so vital to salvation, as some believed, how could Abraham be saved? In other words, are we going to say that he didn't actually come to God 
until Genesis 17 when he was circumcised? You can't say that because Genesis 15, 6 that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So that becomes an important argument. Um, it actually is still a very relevant argument today. It's a little bit off the track of where I'm going to go, but I will just say this. There are those that equate circumcision with baptism. And uh, that becomes um, an interesting trap all of itself. So they baptized the babies. And now, what did they do? He baptized the baby, what did you do to the baby? Well, some would say you've washed away original sin. So the baby's no longer a sinner, and uh, now it's going to be up to the baby to grow into a child and go through confirmation, go through all the things that it's going to have to go through if it wants to, to stay, quote-unquote, saved. Okay. But in real simplistic terms, that's the Roman Catholic position. Okay, very simplistic terms. But we have to be a little simplistic here because this would take us hours to work our way through. Then there's a, yes, Doug. I have a question on if they, re, they believe that circumcision or baptism is replacing circumcision. Yeah. How do they square the fact that Jesus was both circumcised and baptized? Well, see, that's a good argument. And there's a lot of good arguments we could make. Yes, how was Jesus both circumcised and baptized? And that, I think that would go for, for almost everybody that was baptized on the day of, of Pentecost, too. These were Jews, and they were coming to Pentecost, and, and they were already circumcised, you know. So, well, they, there's, there's answers to that, but that's a good argument, nonetheless. It's a very good argument. Uh, then the next group that uh, wouldn't want to go, well, there are some that would go baptismal regeneration, but that are not Catholics. And you'll usually note them by pedo communion. Now they won't just have, yeah, I see some, huh? <laughs> Looks, okay. Pedo communion means this. It means that you've been, you've been baptized as an infant. You've been brought into the covenant. And so how can we deny the Lord's table to you? And so we have the moms, the little mommies, who will stick their finger in the cup and put it on the tongue of their babies. You know, crunch up the, the, the wafer as small as they can, give it to the baby. And they say, well, they're in the covenant. Well, what do you do with those that obviously don't have faith and they prove it as they grow up? What in the world will happen to the covenant? Well, that's where the apostasy doctrine comes in. Well, they were in the covenant, but uh, they did not keep the covenant. And so they, they apostatized. That's a whole other ballgame. And then there's the more normal Presbyterian United Reformed Church um, view of pedobaptism, which says, no, no, they're not in the covenant of grace by their infant baptism. They're in a secondary covenant, and uh, they'll have in their membership, they'll have uh, those that are communicate members and non-communicate members. And those are the ones that, that um, uh, have, you know, very, very close to us. We love them. We appreciate them. We're glad for them. We disagree with them on baptism. We believe baptism is for disciples only. It's for only those that know the Lord Jesus Christ, that believe in him. Um, and those arguments go back and forth. And, and uh, here we are in, in 2023, 
and we haven't solved the arguments yet to everyone's satisfaction. But, um, you know, we've solved it to our satisfaction. And uh, our particular Baptist forefathers solved it to their satisfaction. And hopefully what we've learned to do is get along good with our brothers and sisters. That's what we want to do. For those that believe in faith alone, we want to get along good with them. And we'll argue all day long, well, you just preemptively baptized your child before, before there was faith. And they'd say, well, you know, you're not giving your children all the benefits that come from, from the covenant by waiting to baptize them. So the argument goes back and forth. Uh, both of them, of course, making their points. Not our point today. Not what we're trying to do. But we, you know, circumcision isn't, um, uh, baptism doesn't replace circumcision. If, if, if circumcision was equal to baptism, the New Testament, especially as we go on, doesn't say a whole lot of good things about circumcision. You know, it doesn't praise circumcision. It really, okay. But um, baptism, it's a whole different story. So we believe that uh, the, the seal of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. You know. And circumcision was the seal of the old covenant. Okay. I went off my notes too much. <laughs> okay. But at any way, it, it becomes a, a real issue, and it has to be fleshed out a lot more than that if someone believes in pedo-baptism, which means baptizing the baby, or christening the baby um, that way. Okay, so there's the argument made, and then there's one more um, place we need to look. Oh, by the way, in circumcision, Abraham received a sign and a seal of the faith that he already possessed. Now that's interesting. He received a sign and a seal of a faith that he already possessed. And that's exactly the point of verse 11a. That's what it says. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. Okay. So can God save the Gentiles? Saved Abraham. Yeah, and that's, that's the argument that Paul is making there. And of course, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which we won't look at, but uh, becomes key uh, to understanding God's covenants and the new covenant. Everyone in the new covenant truly belongs to God. They say, well, what about those that make a profession of faith, they're baptized, and they fall away? Well, all we can say is, only God knows those that are truly His, and will baptize people on their profession of faith. But Jesus Christ Himself talked about um, the four types of soil. Some people reject, some people accept for a time, others accept for a longer time, but things finally get choked out, and then others go on to prosper and do well in their Christian life. And there are people that will make a profession of faith that never really knew him at all. Okay, so that's what we'd say. Um, the, the last argument here is uh, does the law, does faith make the law null and void? And uh, just uh, verses 13 through 15, Joe, if you'd read that. 
For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, yeah. So that's basically setting up the argument that's going to be for the rest of the chapter here, basically. Does faith make the law null and void? He's not saying that. Okay. Now, I'm going to read to you verses 16 through 25, pretty much without comment. And you have your translations of the Bible, and I'm going to read from a translation that you probably do not have. Uh, it's not always my favorite translation, but it's a good translation, and um, it's, it's faithful, it's conservative. Uh, the NIV uh, is what I'm going to read from, just asking you to follow along in, in your Bibles. And I think maybe by, by looking at it in, in two different senses, it can really bring some things home to you that would be very, very helpful. It's the application of everything that we've said. Paul goes from verse 16 through 25, applying what he's already said. I'll make a couple stops along the way just to make sure you keep up. Verse 16 is where we start. Therefore, the promise, he's talking about the promise to Abraham and of the new covenant, the coming. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, and he's speaking about believing Jews, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, speaking of the Gentiles. He is the father of us all. That's verse 16. Okay, And you're read differently, but I hope you can see how it actually uh, is saying the same thing in different words. Verse 17, as it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. And what we need to see in that promise to Abraham isn't really the physical nations. Okay? Because many of them actually even went out of existence that were from Abraham. But he's the father of all of us who believe, Jew and Gentile alike. So verse 17 again, as it's written, I've made you the father of many nations. There's a spiritual promise here. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not, verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. And uh, so that's what I'm saying about physically this promise was fulfilled. Other earthly nations besides Israel came from Abraham, but Paul is concerned with the greater spiritual promise. I'm not, re I'm not reading right, the verses right now. I'm just giving some commentary. Which goes beyond Israel and extends to all who believe. He's the father of all who embrace Christ in the new covenant. And all that believe God by faith in every age. Verse 23. Sorry. Uh, that will be proven in verse 23. Let's just start verse 19 now. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Now, why can we say that he never wavered? Because he never turned against God. 
That, that's why we can say that. Did he ever have doubts? Well, we know that he even has some doubts as he says to God, let Ishmael live before you. You know, and of course, uh, that chapter, chapter 16, is a very sad, very sad chapter in Genesis. Uh, but um, chapter 16. But anyway, he, he continued on. Christian friend, let me ask you, do you ever have doubts? If a doubt comes into your mind about the Bible or Christ or salvation or is this really the right way and a doubt comes into your mind, does that prove that you're not a Christian? It doesn't prove you're not a Christian. What will prove you're not a Christian is when the doubts come in and you feed those doubts and you believe those doubts and so you leave. You leave Christ, you leave God, you go and live the world. Okay. That, that could be called apostasy, but technically I would say it means that you never really had true faith to begin with. If you can leave Christ, if you can abandon Christ, then you never really had faith. Verse 21, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 23, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, let's go to Galatians 3. The time that we have left, I think we, can, I think we can finish this because we're saying the same thing again and again. And going to say the same thing here. Okay. And I'll start us off here in Galatians 3, and then Joe, I'll ask you to read a little bit. Okay. But Galatians 3... Paul says to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you, and he doesn't even answer that one. That one is a, a gimme. You know, in Romans he was answering the question. Here he just said, hey, you know, works of faith, which is it? This only I want to learn. Okay. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? There's your answer. Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now that word suffered, I just want to make a point here. Um, you look it up in a, a Greek lexicon and uh, and uh, Pathos, I believe, is what the, the Greek word is. Or no, pasco. It's pasco. Pasco is the Greek word. Um, okay. And, and suffered is the number one. But if you ever notice in dictionary, you have a, a one and a two and a three sometimes, you know. And um, the, the second meaning of pasco can be experienced. Now, there aren't too many translations of the Bible that use experienced here. But let me just read it with experienced. And I think it really makes sense. Have you experienced so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law 
or by the hearing of faith. So that's why I put experience there because it seems to fit the context nicely. Um, Suffered makes us think of persecution, but the context here happens to be the miracles that were happening in the first century amongst those uh, that were in Galatia. Did they experience miracles before the gospel came to them? No, no. If they did, they were false miracles uh, done by deceivers and sorcerers and those that worship demons. Okay, so any miracles they saw beforehand uh, were done in that way, but then they saw the Holy Spirit working in the way the Holy Spirit works. Okay, so, you know. Um, okay, There's gonna be, now, let me just um, say this, verses 6 through 9. There are five keywords in four verses here. Okay. And so, Joe, I'm going to ask you to read verses 6 through 9, verses 6 through 9, and then I'm going to point out the key words in each verse. Okay? Very good. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Okay, let's quickly take these verses apart here and just see what they are. Verse 6 is a master stroke. Again, just quoting from the Old Testament. And uh, accounted is given here. Some modern commentators have argued that we're being told that Abraham's faith is a form of righteousness, that his faith pleased God, his faith was an act of obedience that merited God's favor, but uh, it doesn't say that. It says that uh, Abraham's faith uh, was his righteousness, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was reckoned to him, so to speak. Verse 7 talks about faith again, and... um, Deals another death blow here. Faith is the key word there. Accounted was the key word in verse 6. Faith here, of faith. Verse 8, the gospel. (coughs) The gospel is the key word. In you all nations shall be blessed. How? Tell me how. Say it out loud. How will all nations be blessed through him? Oh, no. (laughs) What's that? Through a seed. Through a seed. There you go. Thank you. I, knew, I think you knew that. I just maybe didn't want to, thought I was trying to trick you. No, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm trying to say the same thing over and over again. Through Jesus Christ the Lord. Jesus Christ is the seed. Okay? Not to seeds as of many, but as of your seed, which is Christ. And we're going to see that as we go here. Those are the gospel. Okay? Abraham, like believing, is contrasted to works. That God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's what verse 8 is all about. You know, when I was in college uh, studying for the ministry, um, we had to memorize Galatians um, 3.8. And I memorized it, and I didn't even understand what it meant. You know? It was much better when I finally understood what it meant. Because it was puzzling to me. What in the world? 
The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Uh, just uh, thinking, that, okay, that's, that's Israel, you know. Well, you go on and you read the rest of, of Galatians here, the rest of, the, of Galatians 8, and believing, you know. And, and what we have here, there's two words that are key um, in verse 9. Of faith and believing. Okay, so that takes that. Now, verses 13 through 16 make this very, very clear. So can you read verses 13 through 16 for us? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet, it is, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. If there was any doubt what we're talking about, verse 16 says it as plainly as could possibly be said. You know, Abraham and his seed. We would miss it probably. We might miss it if Paul didn't go on to explain exactly what he means. Say, well, Paul made a little grammatical error. He should have said uh, to Abraham and his seeds were the promise made. That's what... That's what he should have said. No, that's not what he should have said. And Paul lets us know, I didn't make a mistake and leave off the, the sigma. Okay, <laughs> didn't do that, you know. Nope, instead, uh, we say, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does, not, he does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. That is the purpose of the Abrahamic covenant, to bring Christ into the world. Now, uh, Paul is arguing against the Mosaic Law. We're going to wait on that, okay? I want you to skip all the way down uh, to, to verse, um, let me see which verse we want here. I believe it's verse 26. We're going to skip all the way down to verse 26. And uh, Joe, if you'll read that, I'll give a really quick synopsis, because I'll have about two minutes to do it, of... Um, the conclusion of the matter. Verse 26 through 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay, let's take it bit by bit. That's the conclusion of the matter here. Uh, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, verse 26. It's written to a church, okay? That doesn't mean that everybody's going to heaven. Doesn't mean that everybody's saved. Doesn't mean that God saves everybody. You've got to remember who the audience is. And this audience is primarily a Gentile church or churches. It's really kind of a circular letter that went all throughout Galatia, okay? And uh, that's a province. 
So they're, they're you know, th that's the thing. We're all sons of God. Okay, talking to the church here. For as many of us as we're baptized into Christ have put on Christ, uh, this is just echoes of Romans chapter 6, uh, where uh, spiritual baptism is in view, and um, regeneration, circumcision of the heart. Uh, we died to self and uh, went into the water, were buried with him in death, raised to walk in newness of life. Um, that's what Romans 6 is all about. That's what this is all about too, without saying all those other words. Uh, verse 28. We need to take this one in the sense of what it is. doesn't mean there's no roles left. Roles can still be played. And everybody fills their spot, so to speak. And, uh, but uh, when you come right down to the heart of the matter, when you come right down to who is a Christian, come right down to who are God's chosen people, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the roles haven't been extinguished. But when it comes down to it, uh, let's take the male and female. Uh, in no way are, are women spiritually inferior to men. This isn't true. But there are roles. Look at what happens to a society when they try to erase the roles. Uh, much of the, Europe has already done that. And, and Americans are trying to do that. And then before, but more than just erasing the roles, you can actually change your role. You can become something else if that's what you want to do. And you don't, you can do it medically or you can just say it. If you say it, you know, there's gender fluid. Today, I'm a girl. You know, and you just say that. And you are committing a hate crime if you don't admit, oh yeah, yeah, you are, okay. And so I guess every day you have to ask somebody, what are you? <laughs> And they do. What pronoun do you want? So it's easier just to give a person them or they. You know? <laughs> Which is horrible grammar. And if it were true, there's two of you living in one body. That's pretty bad. You know? That, that's called mental illness. You know? Okay. Possession. And possession. Yes. <laughs> possession. Absolutely. Thank you. And verse 29 is the end. And you are Christ's then. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. That's what the Bible says. Okay. Let's, let's be dismissed with a word of prayer. I'm sorry that we didn't have time for a lot of discussion here, but uh, we are limited in time. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for today and Pray now your blessing upon us as we head to the worship service at 11 o'clock. We pray that you would make each of us to be worshipers. Help Pastor Ken as he brings the word to us. May Jesus Christ receive for himself the glory. In his name we pray. Amen.